Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This is the second of two episodes we are doing on William Hope Hodgson's 1908 novel, The House on the Borderland. This is our discussion episode. Uh, hopefully you've listened to the recap episode or read the book before uh, joining us for this episode. Right. And as we said last time, this pair of episodes was commissioned by uh, one of our Patreon supporters. We just want to say a huge thanks to that person uh, for that here at the top of the show. We just made a blast reading this, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting into the discussion episode here. So uh, I don't think we need to do any more preamble than that here on this episode. Brandon, what do you have for us? Well, the place I'd really like to start with the discussion is with what we left out of the recap, which is all the front (laughs) material of the House of the Borderland. We've got two poems and an introduction to the manuscript to breeze through here and really look at what kind of bearing they have on the story. Or, you know, maybe in the case of just the first poem, if it's just an artifact of publishing, say like a dedication page. And and that's where we're going to start is the dedication page. This novel is dedicated to William Hope Hodgson's father, who was an Anglican priest, maybe a rather controversial one, as he moved parishes about every two years of Hodgson's childhood. And they did end up in Ireland, the Hodgson family. Um, and, And maybe that's why this book is dedicated to Hodgson's father. Now, Hodgson's father died uh, when Hodgson was 14. And Hodgson was apprenticing on a ship as a, as a cabin boy uh, while his father was dying of throat cancer. Um, Hodgson's biography is fascinating, by the way. He was sent away to boarding school at the age of, I don't know, 12 or 13 and tried to escape and then was caught. And he was trying to like get a job on a ship. And then his father eventually realized like this boy is not going to stay in school. He can go apprentice on a ship. Um, and then he died. And so there's probably, I would say, uh, a lot of maybe unresolved feelings that Hodgson has towards his father. I don't know. That doesn't really have much, too much of a bearing on the story. Um, but I'm going to read the the dedication poem, which is called Shoon of the Dead. Uh, Shoon here is just plural for shoe. Like we say shoes now, not shoon. Um, but it's also funny because there's a film called Shaun of the Dead. And I have to think... Uh, <laughs> You know, that that Edgar Wright was a reader of William Hodgson, (laughs) but who knows? Here's the poem. Um, The dedication begins, To my father, whose feet tread the lost aeons. Open the door and listen. Only the wind's muffled roar and the glisten of tears round the moon. And in fancy, the tread of vanishing shoon out in the night with the dead. Hush and hark to the sorrowful cry of the wind in the dark. Hush and hark without murmur or sigh to shoon that tread the lost aeons, to the sound that bids you die. Hush and hark. Hush and hark. So that's the poem. That's the dedication poem to his father. Um, not sure quite what's going on there. Uh, maybe he's, his father is the one whose feet tread the lost aeons. Um, and I, I don't really know what else to say about that at this point. Um, so we're just going to move on and we'll get all the front stuff 
uh, we'll go through all the front stuff before we kind of comment on it and think about it. So the next is the the manuscript introduction, uh, which is fine. And the last paragraph of this introduction to me is the most relevant to our discussion of the rest of the story. So I'm going to read that next. Uh, this is William Hope Hodgson, the character who has found the manuscript. And uh, he writes this. One final impression, and I will cease from troubling. I cannot but look upon the account of the celestial globes as a striking illustration. How nearly had I said proof of the actuality of our thoughts and emotions among the capital R realities. For without seeming to suggest the annihilation of the lasting reality of matter as the hub and framework of the machine of eternity. It enlightens one with conceptions of the existence of worlds of thought and emotion working in conjunction with and duly subject to the scheme of material creation. Uh, this is this is pretty in a pretty insane paragraph, I think. But <laughs> present here are the ideas of like proof, by which I think he means empirical proof, versus like illustration or po- uh, or poetic metaphor, um, and also the ideas of emotions maybe having ideal forms or somehow on another plane of reality, there's an interaction between material and non-material substances. I mean, we're never getting away from these ideas, Glenn. We really got (laughs) to just buckle in and realize that every weird fiction writer is dealing with uh, the question of how material and non-material substances interact. And Hodgson's conclusion here is that on a totally other plane of reality, everything has ideal forms and they all interact together on the same level. That's my reading of this last paragraph here. No, I think that's totally right. I didn't know anything about the philosophical concept of extension before we started podcasting together. And now I can't get away from it. (laughs) I don't think we're ever going to get away from it. I mean, and it's kind of like one of those questions that's uh, has no bearing on the way people actually move about the real world. Uh, but it's a fun little brain tickler, I suppose, as, as everybody's kind of dealing with this. The, the idea of ghosts is really, I don't know, caught up in this question, I guess. All right. And ne- next we have the final poem, which is called Grief. Um, this poem is an artifact of the manuscript. It's found in the pages or in the back page of the whole manuscript written by the recluse. It's about a lost love. I'm going to suggest, hopefully it's not a controversial suggestion, that it was written by the old recluse. I'm not going to read this whole poem. I'm just going to read a relevant stanza here. And hungered to the shore I creep, perchance some old comfort waits on me from the old sea's eternal heart. But lo, From all the solemn deep, far voices out of mystery seem questioning why we are apart. So here you have this imagery that's poetic. It's a metaphor about creeping on a shore, looking for comfort in some old sea. Uh, I think that there's a resolution to this poem in the story and that this poem is important to maybe untangling one of the narrative knots that is present in the recluse's diary, namely that he's a recluse because his lover died and all he wants to do is be with her again. And so condemns himself, I'm going to say to hell instead of moving on. And, um, all of this is to say that this is really a hell of a, uh, of a story to dedicate to your father. (laughs) 
Right. Well, both this poem, which is actually called Grief, and the, the poem that is dedicated to his father, uh, whose feet tread the, the lost eons, or actually, I guess, right, that poem is called Shoon of the, the Dead. I mean, they, they are both dealing with with the similar idea, right, of, of, of grief, of missing someone who is now absent in your life. It is clear that that is the central emotion of this story is is grief, is loss, is, is this longing for someone who has died. It's really interesting to me that Hodgson transposes that from grief for his father to grief about uh, a lover, though that's, of course, you know, that's what good storytellers do is they, they twist these things in order to ex- explore them. But I'm not sure that without this prefatory material, that that's what would have jumped out to me as being the central component of the story. Yeah, I I don't think it would jump out to me either. In fact, even rereading it in in light of the discussion and saying, okay, this front material has some sort of bearing on the rest of the story. Even in doing that, I'm not sure that, as you said, without it, it has any real bearing on what is taking place in the story. And and all this front material, I think leads us to the first real flaw in this novel, which is the the frame narrative. Though we'll talk about how the front material reframes the rest of the story, maybe as we, as we kind of move deeper in the discussion. And I want to talk about this frame narrative, because while I enjoy the, the first frame story a lot, I can't help but feel that it really contradicts the manuscript introduction by Hodgson on some level. And so I feel like this sets us up for a lot of the way that the story reads is disjointed uh, in a strange way. And uh, what I want to do next then is is pull apart the story and zoom out first to a massive like structural, you know, 10,000 foot view of the story and then zoom back in on a few elements to try to put it all back together and get a coherent sense of what Hodgson is going for here. Um, you know, when we talk about craft, though this is all going to be kind of a craft discussion, one of the things that we have to talk about is whether or not there is a coherent tale here at all. Yeah, let's uh, let's zoom in on the frame narrative first before we zoom out and look at the the whole big structure. Because you're you're right, I think, to say that it contradicts this introduction to the manuscript. The introduction to the manuscript, I mean, just should suffice, I think, actually, as all the frame that we need, right? It just says, for the manuscript itself, you must picture me when first it was given into my care, turning it over curiously and making a swift, jerky examination. And it just tells us about the book as a, a material object and that it you know, came into his possession under sort of mysterious circumstances. He just makes a great use of the passive voice there, so we don't ever know who actually gave it to him or anything about that. And what you think when you're reading this is, cool, okay, I got the end of this introduction to the manuscript. I'm now going to flip the page and we're just going to get the manuscript. But we we don't. We can then get this additional frame, and which is cool. I really loved the additional frame, right? I love the opening chapter. I want that to be a, a speculative world that Hodgson has uh, has written other stories in. I, I know that, that we don't think that he has. Uh, maybe we should write some, some stories set there. I think it was really cool, but it doesn't make any sense to me how that account or exists and why it is included in what he is calling the manuscript. And that fact sucks me out of the story a little bit. It's one of the ideas that Hodgson has put into this story that 
creates a tension. They pull against one another rather than kind of coalescing. And while I agree with you, I love the first frame narrative a lot. I love the kind of hinterland adventure, the traveling up and down the river, the scary campfire tale is a great setup for reading this manuscript to set the scene of the way the manuscript should be written in. I, I do wonder why Hodgson felt he had to include his own manuscript introduction. Um, and I, and I, them and left wondering if it's because the frame narrative doesn't do anything to set up what Hodgson thinks is important about the novel that he's written. And to me, that's kind of a, a flaw already. And that's okay, because there's a lot of great ideas in this story. And it's kind of persisted in the in the circles of weird fiction literary studies, because it's uh, so full of great ideas. But as I said, in the recap episode, there's not a critic alive that is approaching this text without uh, an awareness of it being flawed on some on some deep levels. Right. I mean, I think it's fair to say flawed, but but maybe a better way to put it would be doesn't conform to the way that we tell stories uh, 100 years on uh, and certainly does not conform to the way the publishing industry has grown up in terms of what people expect from from novels, how they access novels and and how uh, publishers want to market novels. Right. This story does not conform to any of that, but it also comes from a world where none of that artifice, none of that edifice existed yet, right? So, you know, flawed maybe is not the worst word, but I'm not sure it's the word I would use. Disjointed. Maybe that's a better word than flawed. So before we move into to talking about the whole structure of the novel, I just am going to do a quick inventory of like places, animals, and people, just so we have those in our mind. Uh, we have the house on the borderland, which includes the gardens, the pit, and the subterranean pit. You can toss in like the basement trap door and stuff like that if you want. There's the study and there's all the stuff in the house. Then there's the plain of silence, which includes the arena, the mountain range of uh, statuesque gods. They're all inert. I think that's probably the best word to use to describe these gods. Uh, the Emerald House, which is the echo, I'll say, or the doubling of the house on the borderland and the Sea of Sleep, where the recluse can meet his lover. That's also kind of a deep place of of evil. Um, and it really evokes the sense of, of dreaming, um, but it's, it's an inescapable dream. In terms of animals, we have Pepper, uh, something I'm calling New Dog, <laughs> Tip, who's introduced <laughs> at the very end. That's Mary's cat, the swine things, and the thing in the arena, which I described in the recap episode is kind of the proto-swine thing. This is the one that's bioluminescent. It gives us this greenish hue, and it's a symbol of corruption or perversion of the the green that is kind of the pure intelligence of the universe or the maybe pure ideal form of the house on the borderland kind of free from corruption. And in terms of people, we have the recluse, Mary, and the, the beloved, the object of the recluse's desire. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. That's just an inventory since we're doing this kind of odd mode of literary uh, structural critique here. It's helpful to have that stuff in mind. Yeah. One thing that uh, you left off the inventory of places, I guess, is outer space. Uh, yes, the, uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a very crucial part to the story, the cosmos, uh, which seem to be Im important in some way, the exploration 
the astral exploration of the the cosmos. That's excellent. Um, all right, so let's talk about the story structure and the elements included in the story in, in a kind of abstract sense. There's the frame narrative, which may or may not work, as we talked about. I like it. I'm not sure it's a part of the manuscript, which makes its presence a little confusing, but I really love the, the first frame. We've talked about that a lot. The frame narrative is about f- the finding of the manuscript in the ruins of the house on the borderland, which lets us know that all of this is past. Like This is not going to be a recurring event. Nobody can experience this again. Next up, we get the first vision, which takes up four chapters. Uh, the vision takes the recluse to the plane of silence for the first time. Here he sees the uh, old gods of mythology, that's a quote, and some that have not yet been discovered. And he sees the you know looking glass version of the house in Emerald with something trying to break in. Uh, and that's the thing in the arena, which is some sort of bioluminescent pig thing. Uh, Next, we have the siege narrative and its aftermath. The aftermath is largely involved with securing the grounds, the the home alone um, part of the story. Uh, The securing of the grounds includes the pit, which fills with water, or the trapdoor in the basement. Uh, A lot of the house grounds exploration is here. Uh, And of course, the siege narrative. This section is nine chapters. It's an adventure tale or a survival horror tale. And at the very end of this nine chapter section uh, of the narrator batting down the hatches. He thinks of his lost love for the first time, though she is present in this mysterious poem Uh, moment of him thinking of his lost love leads us into the second vision. This is another nine chapters and much of it is caught up with descriptions of the material universe, the heat death of the universe The narrator's refusal to leave the house because his lover is allowed to visit him at the Sea of Sleep, and the idea that somehow this other plane is connected to the corporeal plane that he's a part of. And then finally, we get the aftermath of this second vision after Pepper dies. Uh, Basically, this is the thing from the arena breaking into our reality and infecting the recluse with a fungal disease that causes him to believe he's becoming this, you know, quote, terrible mass of living corruption. Uh, This is three chapters. And then the final frame narrative is the final chapter. So it's actually very tidy in terms of structure. And I'm I'm honestly not sure what fruit there is to glean from the the tree here of, of, looking at the kind of numerical numbers of chapters and how they're working. Um, But in the middle section, there are nine chapters each with not quite a mirroring number of chapters on either side, four in the front, three in the back, uh, plus the two frame narrative chapters. But in the beginning, we have the introduction to the thing in the arena. We have its return at the end. The lover is present in the poem at the beginning and then looms over the story, sort of breaking through uh, in this transitional moment that leads us to the second vision section. Uh, And so before kind of digging more into the the discussion of the story here, I want to ask you, Glenn, does examining the story in terms of this structure give you any sense of imbalance in the narrative? When I look at the story this way, I, I think the siege narrative is out of place. I think there might be a better way to demonstrate the link between the corporeal plane of reality, our world, and the second plane. And and of course, I'm assuming that given the manuscript introduction that this is really what Hodgson is driving at. He's trying to demonstrate sort of 
some sort of connection between these worlds where um, the ideal forms of uh, emotions have uh, the uh, same weight of reality as the material forms in our world. But uh, I, I don't know. I'd rather get your thoughts here a little bit since I just spent uh, five minutes breaking down <laughs> the structure of this narrative. Right. Well, I think what you're driving at, Brandon, is that the 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 different components of this story don't feel like they're actually all the same story. And I think that you're right. They don't. That there are there are two different stories here that Hodgson has meshed together, which is not a bad way to do things. But I think that we, a hundred years on, would want them smashed up together a little bit differently than Hodgson does, uh, because they do really feel like two distinct episodes. Right, that when we are done with the the attack of the swine things, we think we're done with the attack of the swine things. Then we get this whole other adventure that it turns out is actually the thing that Hodgson himself is thinking the book is about, right? And then we leave that behind and we go back to the swine things, which is a bit of the story that we thought was over, that we thought we had left behind. And I think it's really maybe the interruption of the swine thing part that uh, that doesn't sit well with me, that I think maybe of actually the swine thing part, uh, which is my favorite part. That's the part I really love, the home invasion, the, the home alone part of this story. If that had really, really ended and then we just got part two of this story, it wouldn't feel quite so disjointed to me. But because it comes back when we think that it's actually over, it does feel disjointed. And it makes me say, well, wait, what is this story actually about? Yeah, I, I mean, my reading is is the exact opposite of yours, naturally, uh, <laughs> as, 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 as tradition demands here, that because of the way the manuscript sets up the story, the poem about the lost love is is the kind of front matter of the story and the way that it opens the, the the four chapters that are introducing us to this world of the manuscript are a, a vision which the, to me the first and second visions don't have a lot of coherence either um that to me the home invasion part is 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 the part that i would excise um because of the way the rest of the story is trying to hang together as some sort of, uh, I don't know, metaphysical, materialistic retelling of the uh, apocalypse in some sense. Though there's also some real sense that this character is uh, kind of put himself in a prison of grief that has kind of become a sort of hell that has instantiated itself in the second plane of existence. Well, I do actually think we're saying the same thing here. <laughs> well, you actually think, so, and, and and what I mean is that I think you're just saying you want to get rid of the swine thing story altogether because you didn't like it as much as I did. So I think you would be fine if this book were pared down to, you know, not novel length, but novella length and just about the metaphysical story. Whereas I still want both parts of the story. I just want the swine thing story to be a complete unit. And then we just switch into phase two. But I think we're saying the same thing, that we don't want the swine thing story kind of interweaving with this other bit, that we'd like it to be its own thing. And maybe, you know, your solution of excising them and just making them two different stories could work. I think they could still be in the novel together. I just would have preferred that the swine thing story, you know, firmly came to an end and then we got all the metaphysical stuff, you know, or vice versa. You could put the metaphysical stuff first if you want to do that. So I think let's let's maybe do a little bit of story doctor in here. We've been dancing around that a little bit. I think that 
you know, there are, there are maybe two schemes here that we could do. I mean, one is to treat the two components, the metaphysical and the swine thing component as two separate stories. And, 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 you know, they could still be set in the same setting, you know, the same narrator, but maybe let's make them two stories rather than try to make them one single story. And, you know, maybe you write a third story and call it a trilogy. That would be one tactic. And I think that might be your preferred tactic, but you know, there's another way to do this too, which would be, you could still have these mashed up together in one one novel but i think the way that an, an audience in 2020 versus 1908 would want them to be meshed together would actually be properly meshed together where we're going uh, you know one chapter on on a and one chapter on b or you know two and two or two and one occasionally right that to actually be interwoven in a way that they are not here, where these actually seem maybe glued together. And I think interwoven is really the mode that we prefer today. I think that's an excellent solution. And it would really allow Hodgson to have the recluse take action in the astral world, in the world where the metaphors are real in some sense, where he could do something there that has some sort of bearing on the corporeal plane. And and that, that would work just as well. But I think Hodgson is kind of up to a few different things. And uh, that's okay. Because I think that the, the swine thing, the siege narrative really works on its own. And the visions are the place that we need to investigate next. And, and that's what I really want to talk about here next are the visions. The most valuable place to start, as I've hinted at, with the two vision sections is to put the visions and, and maybe then as a result, the whole of the House of the Borderlands in conversation with H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. In the recap episode, I brought up a few times the imagery of the clock and the way that it's compared to the winding down of the universe. It's not to mention that Hodgson uses this phrase, the machine of eternity, in the introduction to the manuscript. So the universe, even the plane where emotions could be ideal objects in some sense or are instantiated in such a way that they can impact material objects, is not just a material universe, but it's a mechanistic one. So I'm just going to point out also that in terms of context, that this story was written right around the same time that Einstein was putting together the theory of relativity and it was coming out. And the material, as I said, the ether, the idea of the ether, this what the universe was made of was being discussed. It was being disputed. Um, and I wonder if that's why there's so much fixation on the cosmos in this story. It's just a side note. But in any event, these cosmic visions and the passage of time seem to have something in common with H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. So I'm going to read one passage from The House on the Borderland, then two from The Time Machine. Uh, we're just going to see what happens if I do that. Uh, so I'm going to read this um, paragraph from page 82 of The House of the Borderlands here as, as an example of prose or ideas that overlap with the time machine. Thus matters were, and even after many incredible things that I have seen, I experienced all the time a most profound awe. To see the sun rise and set within a space of time to be measured by seconds, to watch, after a little, the moon leap, a pale and ever-glowing orb, up into the night sky and glide with a strange swiftness through the vast arc of blue. And presently to see the sun follow, springing out of the eastern sky as though in ch chase. 
And then again the night, with the swift and ghostly passing of starry constellations, was all too much to view believingly. Yet so it was, the day slipping from dawn to dusk, and the night sliding swiftly into day, ever rapidly and more rapidly. There's a lot more description here about the passage of time, but this one I think is sufficient to capture uh, the point maybe that I'm trying to make. And so now I'm going to read from the time machine. I'm afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time traveling. They are excessively unpleasant. There's a feeling exactly that one has upon a switchback of a helpless headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation too of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day like the flipping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping it every minute, and every minute marking a day. I supposed the laboratory had been destroyed, and I had come into the open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed by too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light was excessively painful to the eye. Then, in the intermittent darknesses, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full, and had a faint glimpse of the circling stars. Presently, as I went on, still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous grayness. The sky took on a wonderful deepness of blue, a splendid luminous color like that of early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch in space, the moon a fainter fluctuating band. And I could see nothing of the stars, save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. And here's another passage that is more about kind of the end of the universe in the time machine. As I drove on, a peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. The palpitating grayness grew darker. Then, though I was still traveling with prodigious velocity, the blinking succession of day and night, which was usually indicative of a slower pace, returned and grew more and more marked. This puzzled me very much at first. The alterations of night and day grew slower and slower, and so did the passage of the sun across the sky, until they seemed to stretch through centuries. At last, a steady twilight brooded over the earth, a twilight only broken now and then when a comet glared across the darkling sky. The band of light that had indicated the sun had long since disappeared, for the sun had ceased to set. It simply rose and fell in the west and grew ever broader and more red. All trace of the moon had vanished. The circling of the stars growing slower and slower had given place to creeping points of light. At last, some time before I stopped, the sun, red and very large, halted motionless upon the horizon, a vast dome glowing with a dull heat, and now and then suffering momentary extinction. At one time, it had for a little while glowed more brilliantly again but it speedily reverted to its sullen red heat. I perceived by this slowing down of its rising and setting that the work of the tidal drag was done. The earth had come to rest with one face to the sun, even as in our own time the moon faces the earth. Very cautiously, for I remembered my former headlong fall, I began to reverse my motion. 
Slower and slower went the circling hands until the thousands one seemed motionless and the daily one was no longer a mere mist upon its scale. Still slower until the dim outlines of a desolate beach grew visible. This is towards the end of the time machine. And this is the basically extinction of all life on earth. This is a purely materialistic sense of the heat death of the universe that Wells is describing. But what I really want to point out here is some of the language is very similar between the time machine and house on the borderland. And there are more commonalities between the texts of the time travel and the experience of the death of the universe uh, or the slowing of the sun than just in the passage that I read from the house in the borderland. So I wonder if Hodgson is on one level of the text with these visions responding to the time machine, to this materialistic, mechanistic sense of the universe. And it's trying to take it to another level by, as I, as I suggested in the recap, rescuing the idea of consciousness or souls here. Um, and that just makes me wonder, <laughs> as a total aside, if the swine things are really just some kind of response to Morlocks. Um, but I wonder what was going through through your head here as I was reading these passages from the time machine and thinking about what Hodgson has presented in the borderland in the house on the borderland as the recluse's experience of these same sorts of things. Yeah, this is all really awesome. Let me back us up just a little bit. The historian in me uh, wants to contextualize some of the things that you, you said in your preamble to reading these passages, which is just to situate us in time. So things that we've we've thrown out, right? The, so the date of uh, the date of the House on the Borderland is you know uh, 1908, published uh, probably written in 1907 or 1906. Einstein's uh, really big papers, where just almost everything that he's famous for is first published is uh, in 1905. And Hodgson almost certainly did not actually read those papers, but probably did read journalism, science journalism about those papers. These were huge news. They were, you know, they would have been in newspapers. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells is 1894. And there's for good measure because I got the date wrong in our recap episode. Dracula, 1897, not 1894. That doesn't matter here in this list, but we're we're dating things. Um, I just want to say that, you know, this period between 1890 or so and the beginning of the First World War and in 1914, uh, what's often called the the fin de siècle, uh, is a really awesome period in literature where we have all sorts of stories like this uh, in dialogue with one another. Everybody was reading everything. Things were largely published, serialized in newspapers and so on. And so people were really responding to each other's works in ways that just don't happen with us today, where we just kind of live in bubbles and we read and we write in bubbles and we podcast in bubbles and so on. Uh, So a very different world, uh, intellectual world than the one that we inhabit now. I do also want to say, I have done the time machine here on the the network. Uh, I've done an ATOS style episode on the time machine that's going to be a Patreon episode at some point in 2021. So people who are hearing the early access version of this on Patreon, which we do since this was a commissioned episode, uh, will not have access to that yet, I don't think. Uh, But uh, Elder Sign listeners may be able to pop over to to Patreon and uh, check that out if they're interested. And and the reason I'm, I'm thinking, even just thinking back to my Patreon, Patreon episode about the time machine is that one of the things that struck me on my reread of the Wells book a few months ago is that 
it also is really disjointed and not written at all the way that we would write that story today, where there's this whole story that's about Morlocks and Eloy and it's about the time traveler. And his motive is trying to get his time machine back. And then there's some business about uh, a woman he's come to care for uh, going into danger and so on. The, all of that story happens, then that story ends, and then we get this weird coda where he also then goes to the end of the end of end of the universe, the end of time, and watches it happen, and then goes back. But it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story that is actually dealing with the thematic material of social Darwinism and uh, political issues around late stage or the, the, the second phase of the Industrial Revolution and the advent of uh, industrial capitalism. Those are the things that Wells is dealing with in the story that we all think of as the time machine. Then he gets this other strange coda where he wants to deal with this idea of the materialism of the universe or of the cosmos, uh, much in the same way that this book, The House on the Borderland, strikes us as feeling disjointed. So it just is, you know, just to, just to back up my point earlier, that just our modes of storytelling, the things we expect to find in our stories is different than, than we had 100 years ago, 120, 130 years ago. But now that I've said all of that, let me get to the actual point that you're trying to make here, which is, hey, this book is very much in response to the things that are going on in the time machine. And maybe I'll harken back to, you know, we've done some Wells before also on on Patreon. We did his uh, really great short story, The Star. One of the things we talked about, I don't know if you remember this, Brandon, it was like 25 years ago now or something when we did that. Uh, but one of the things we talked about there was Wells is scientism his is really hostility to to religion that goes hand in hand with his materialism right meaning that he does not think that there is anything to the idea of of a spiritual existence he thinks that matter as we see it as we can touch it is what we get that's all we get that's what the cosmos is and basically that nothing is going to happen when we die that we don't have souls there's no such thing we are just bodies that we are just matter everything is just matter that's very clear in a lot of things that wells writes and it is a big part of that end of the time machine there i mean that's what he's describing for us is the there's bits and pieces of the the cosmos ending and watching it happen, or really, I maybe should just say the Earth, the solar system, not the entire uh, galaxy, the entire Milky Way galaxy, or the, the universe, to be clear. But that's clearly what Hodgson is responding to here, and Hodgson very clearly, I think, also has a different attitude about this, which maybe is not surprising since he grew up in a household as the son of, uh, of uh, an Anglican priest, and the book is dedicated to him. The book is dedicated to that priest, right? So it's maybe no surprise that Hodgson is wanting to offer a, an alternative understanding of what actually makes up the the universe. But that is also, like you say, trying to grapple with the revolutions in physics that we're kind of using Einstein's uh, 1905 papers here as kind of a, a shorthand way of, of, of talking about that, right? But revolutions in physics that Einstein is a part of, but not the only part of and thinking about what are the properties of the universe? What are the physical properties of the universe? What is it made of? How do those things relate to each other? And Hodgson is trying to live in that world while also still living in the world of, of Christian cosmology. That, that's my sense of it anyway. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to Christian cosmology. And I think we're going to, that's the next question I, I want to get, get into. But I, I think that there is some move on Hodgson's part here towards his father's 
belief system. I, I don't think that Hodgson was, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a kind of a doctrinal or orthodox Christian, though it, it really does seem to me as though he is interested in the idea of, I don't know, the transmigration of, of souls, um, of uh, a kind of eternal recurrence or return where the, the universe repeats itself infinitely. Um, and there is a core intelligence to the universe. He's not willing to call it the Christian God, though we should say that the the new sun being green here, and we have all these ideal forms, the house, the emerald house, for instance, is an ideal form. It's emerald. Uh, that the, this sun is really more of a, he, he comes to think of it more of as this intelligent being than just a, a star that is pulling the universe back into itself. Um, it's it's just very interesting to me that this story, you know, just on the level of language is borrowing and responding to Wells' time machine and saying like, hold on, you can't just speculate that none of this sort of metaphysical reality is real in your book about time travel. I'm going to write an imaginative book that covers some of the same ground, except I don't know, my character's going to be evil on some level. That's a very strange choice to me, but that the kind of non-material world is just as real as the material world. And I think that that is one level in which this text could be analyzed, um, which I don't know if we're going to go too much more into, but I hope it's food for thought for um, you know our audience to, to maybe go to the Gutenberg project and read The Time Machine and then read The House on the Borderland and kind of <laughs> compare them side by side. Well, I think also we need to throw in that mix Dante, right? And I guess maybe that's what I was thinking of when I'm I'm invoking Christian cosmology. Uh, this idea of thinking about, you know, in Dante's case, just the 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 planets, right? The the celestial spheres of our solar system, as a part of the the heavens, right? Uh, of of thinking about the lights that we see in the sky, the lights we see in the night sky, as actually uh, having some kind of of role to play in the understanding of of what is the Christian afterlife, and that seems to be what Hudson is doing here as well, right, with his own celestial spheres. I think that's absolutely right, and I, and I would argue that Dante is on. Hodgson's mind as he's writing the story, as we pointed out in the recap, the Sea of Silence, uh, which is an evil place, admittedly, by the ghost of the lover, is paradise to the recluse because she is there, which is, as I said, a perversion of this kind of Beatrice archetype uh, that we find in uh, the Divine Comedy by Dante. Well, the, the next level that I want to look at the visions on is really the purely metaphysical level. I think we've covered kind of the, the I don't know, knots in the purely materialistic or mechanistic uh, senses of that uh, fairly well, or at least given enough food for thought for people to think about uh, beyond, <laughs> beyond the limits of our, of our uh, podcast here. But um, I think there's some real metaphysics going on. And, and I primarily want to look at the relationship between the plane of silence and the quote unquote real world. And also, I want to explore what could be Hodgson's, you know, pseudo-secular materialistic apocalypse as a reimagining of the of the Christian apocalypse found in the book of Revelation. And some of this we've kind of already danced around. And we don't have time to do a huge textual analysis here. So I'm just going to move briskly through some of these points. Um, 
I'm going to suggest that the plane of silence is some sort of echo or a representation of our world um, that includes a full representation of all the possible gods. But here these gods are giant stone statues surrounding the uh, emerald house on the borderland. Um, and this green imagery is, again, I'm going to say is, is, is a representation of the ideal form in some way. Um, and it's important because it's the ultimate intelligence of the universe is the screen sun and the thing of the arena is a corruption of that. Uh, it lets off a greenish hue as part of its luminescence, but it's not green. It kind of like leaks this green in a, in a, in a, this green light. And it's a kind of negative image, but man, let me just say, it's tough to do all a drive by of all this stuff, but all of it's in the text. I swear, <laughs> I promise you, I am not going out of the text here. Um, you know, so the swine things in terms of the relationship between of the plane of silence in the real world, the swine things are clearly related to the thing in the arena in some regard. You know, clearly the sea of sleep is a key to understanding the connection to the mental, emotional life of the recluse and his being coming, his becoming of being of pure consciousness where he can rest with his love. It's tied to the dream world where the emotional realities are real, but there's also real danger there, perhaps even evil. It seems to be an unconscious representation of the imagery found in his poem. And that's the first place I want to start. We'll move to the Christian apocalypse stuff next. But the first place is the connection between the plane of silence and it being maybe a kind of ideal form. Um, and maybe the sea of sleep is a part of that as well. And our real world I just did a quick drive-by of points of connection. What are your thoughts on the relationship, the kind of metaphysical relationship between these two places and what they mean? This is really where this gets I don't know, confusing for, for me, but also then also really very interesting because it seems to me like Hodgson is trying to have it two different ways here, where Hodgson is showing us an earth that is just a, a, a ball of rock and water in space, one among many, one among many spheres in space, and that you can travel through space and go to different places. And that's actually how we get to the plane of silence and, and the arena and see all of these things. But then also there seems to be a very direct direct connection between what's in the arena and what is happening here in this obscure uh, unnamed corner of County Galway in Ireland that is not about the relationship of two spheres in space, two balls of, of rock and water in space, right? That they have something that feels more like uh, different planes or something like that. And so Hodgson is maybe trying to have it both ways. And, and, and maybe he really is trying to have it both ways. Maybe he's suggesting that those are kind of the same thing, that there are all these different ways of of, of traveling uh, between or among the, the different parts of the the cosmos. One of them is to astrally project yourself and physically then travel through outer space to this other planet. But the other is that there's just some weird kind of portal connection where uh, the uh, where the platonic ideal of the swine things can actually cross over to the recluse's house in Ireland. Um, but it may also just be that we're dealing, what we're dealing with here are reflections. And, and that 
really maybe seems to be what the swine things themselves are. One of the differences we pointed out a lot in the recap between the the many swine things at the start of the the book and the one that ultimately ends up being the the narrator's undoing is that there's this bioluminescent glow associated with the the big one. So it may just be that these are like mirrors, that these are, these really are, uh, not mirrors, that's not quite right, but that, they, that we are talking about platonic forms here, right? So that these are not the same exact thing as the ideal that exists here in the on the plane of silence, but are just a, a, a pale image of that, a, a pale uh, adaptation of that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And what really interests me is th the kind of crossover that we've talked about. These are sort of echoes that are becoming real in a sense, and they become more real as the recluse is more and more mired in his own obsession with reclaiming the emotional state of infatuation or desire that he has with his object of desire, the lover. And I think that that is kind of the level that Hodgson is working with is this obsession with returning to states of being, non-material states of being, these uh, unconscious moods or purely conscious moods like love um, and how they do have a real impact in the way we go about our lives in the material world. Um, they impact our interactions with other people. They impact the foods that we eat or that we're hungry for, our understanding of what the world is. They alter our perceptions of the world. And I think that's what Hodgson is driving at. I don't think he lands it, but I think that's what he's driving at, which is why this is sort of an evil place and not a good place, because he's dealing with the desire to return to a state of being and make that an unchangeable status quo, uh, which is kind of a deadly way to live. Things do change. People do die. Um, our loves move around. Our desires shift. Um, and in a sense, maybe the recluse is trying to lock these ideas in place the same way these old gods are merely inert statues which is like, what is their power then, other than being a representation? What impact can they really have? Uh, and, I, and I think that's kind of what Hodgson is playing with, though it seems underdeveloped to me in the narrative. Well, let me ask you a question about the relationship then between Earth generally, but then also the house on the borderland with what we get on the plane of, of silence, the, the house in the arena and these, uh, these, these statues of the, the gods or these inert figures of the, the gods. Because I, I guess I was taking as given, though I have no evidence to offer for this, it's just what I inferred, just really what I assumed reading the story, that the things that are happening out in space, the things that are happening in this arena on the plane of silence are the real thing and then what's going on on earth is the the reflection or the echo of that but do i have it backwards is that is that you know if we're thinking about these inert gods as you know like wondering why they're inert and and and, and powerless and just shapes there is it because they're the echo of things that people have thought on earth and not the other way around 
man, I really wish I had an answer for you. (laughs) (laughs) Because it certainly works on that level, like completely and entirely works on that level. And I think that the narrator's attempt to kind of be stuck in that world is a forsaking of the material universe. But like I said, it's really underdeveloped. The story is, as I pointed out in the recap, I think I said it was bloated with ideas that really push and pull against each other. And this is an instance where I think that happens. And I think in one sense, I prefer the idea that the emotional world is, or the second plane of reality is the echo of this world. And the thing in the arena trying to get into the Emerald House is the narrator's isolation finally taking over, uh, where he is giving himself entirely over to his grief and obsession with his object of desire. And maybe that he's drawing those things into the real world in some sense. But um, it's tough to get a solid reading on this story. Right. I mean, Hodgson does not spell this out, right? This is not a, a fantasy novel in which what, one of the things that we're chiefly interested in is how does the magic or, or how does the, the numinous thing actually function? Hodgson is not making that at all clear to us. And I, I don't think he's even inviting us in to try to figure out a system that he himself has devised, which is, you know, that's what Gene Wolfe does, right? But that's not what's happening here. I, I'm not sure that Hodgson himself maybe could answer the questions that we've got like this. Right. Well, let's move on uh, briefly, because I think we're probably going to return to this in in the last kind of story question that I have or or structure question that we're looking at or zoom in. Um, I want to touch on the next next metaphysical level of this story, which has to do with the transmigration of souls, eternal recurrence or the eternal return of the universe and the end of the universe. And as I've said many times, this seems to me to be an attempt for Hodgson to retain the power of consciousness and souls without resorting to the uh, Christian apocalyptic end of the world where Christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth, etc. Rather, uh, the universe, or at least the recluse, returns after the universe ends and he comes back to his home. He returns exactly to where he was in his lifetime, maybe as the universe spins back to place him there, but it's a rebooted universe. And some of the differences are that like Pepper is a pile of ash, <laughs> but instead his sister has a cat and something has changed. Perhaps the whole universe has gone through one of his in- its infinite cycles, in other words, of expanding and retracting. Um, and all we know is that Pepper is no longer there. Pepper didn't survive that eternal recurrence. But Pure consciousness is a real material idea. The book of Revelation is invoked. Hodgson is trying to do something with that in this story. And, you know, I don't think we need to go too deep into this, but what do you think Hodgson is doing by invoking the book of Revelation with the recluse's apocalyptic visions? Well, let me go back and, and tug on on the thread that you you dangled there for me, which is this idea of... of, of is the present of the end of the book the same present as the beginning of the book? Or are we dealing with some kind of multiverse here where, uh, 
you know, Hodgson or, or the recluse rather started on Earth one, went to the end of the cosmos and then went back and found himself on Earth. 1610 or something like that right <laughs> and and so things are slightly different right things are very much very similar but slightly different although he doesn't encounter another version of himself here though uh, you know i don't know if we could write that fan fiction that would be a lot of fun to do that's a really interesting idea it did not occur to me while i was reading it but it does explain why there's a cat and i guess you would have to think why not mention the cat earlier especially when we are already using animals to show us that there is danger uh, or when there is danger, where it's coming from, and also to make us scared, right? That there would have been great use for the cat during the actual siege narrative. And so maybe there just wasn't a cat then because this was a different part of the, the multiverse. That's a really interesting idea. I think it would you know shake up a lot of the things that we've been thinking about in terms of what Hudson is up to with his metaphysics. But uh, let me get to your real question here, which is about why why invoke this apocalyptic uh, imagery and well you know i mean we are getting the end of the the universe here i i do think that something that is strange to me in thinking about you know the the flippant thing i guess maybe that i said earlier that you were you were right to uh to to question me on is is the extent to which hudson is offering up a kind of christian cosmology here that might still work in the materialist cosmology that's growing up in the the, the revolution in in physics around 1900 because you know I'm not really sure where there's any Christ necessarily uh or even Christian or or Judeo-Christian theology necessarily in this story other than that we are dealing with a a universe in which souls and 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 emotions our mentalities have a material existence in ways that people like wells don't allow for and hodson seems to be thinking through what that would actually be like here what would it mean for us if all of the things that physicists and astronomers are showing us about our universe right now that have been revolutionizing things for 20 or 30 years and are certainly going to continue to for the the rest of the 20th century how do we reconcile that with our understanding of of souls as being this eternal thing and thinking of heaven or, or just any other kind of afterlife as a physical place, as a material place. Where in the cosmos does that place exist? I mean, this is maybe the same question that uh, Star Trek V is asking when they uh, <laughs> you know, actually go to the planet where they find God, but except it's not actually God. Right? That seems to be the sort of thing that Hodgson is envisioning here. So he's saying, okay, well, where is heaven and how do we get there? And when do we get there? And he seems to be envisioning that it takes a really long time for our souls as a material object to get to the center of the universe, which is what we all mean by heaven. That's where we're all going to live in the in the afterlife together. At least that's maybe my sense of it. But again, I think this is all a little bit con- confused. I, I don't know. What, what did you think was going on here? I mean, I think that's a fine reading. I agree that it's confused. And I uh, I really think that the... I really think that one thing that Hodgson is doing is trapping his character in in hell while all of these other uh, souls travel to the point of eternal return or the prime mover or the green new sun or whatever that what Hodgson is showing us. And, And I think the only bit of Christian metaphysics we get at the end is the narrator, the, the recluses crying out for forgiveness invokes the name of Jesus here to do that. Um, 
though that seems to me to be more of a uh, use of language that is practical, more practical than it is prayerful. Um, it's not an appeal to Jesus. It's more like, oh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> you know, like I'm really screwed here. Um, but but yeah, I, I think it's a little confused. And um, I think that Hodgson is really caught up, as I've said many times here, with this idea of the eternal return uh, and is using some platonic imagery poorly to kind of deal with that, to explore that, those images. The, the last thing I want to do here story-wise uh, before we kind of wrap up this episode uh, with our final thoughts and maybe some thoughts on craft and, and sentiments is uh, to talk about whether or not anything that the recluse has reported has actually happened. Uh, Hodgson gives us plenty of cause to doubt the recluse's reports, uh, particularly if we're going to look at this story from Mary's experience or perspective, which is which is what we're going to do next. I'm going to recap what I think Mary's experience has been briefly. Uh, feel free to jump in and add anything that you'd like. Uh, she comes on as a brother's housekeeper. Ten years go by, all is well. She's maybe isolated, but like whatever. Then strange things start to happen, but they're really just happening to her brother. He's holding up in his office more often. He's missing meals. Another, like, whatever, that's fine. She's not to interrupt him. Then the dog gets attacked, and the brother starts freaking out. He rushes her into the house for reasons she doesn't understand. She has a panic attack and goes to bed. And throughout the night, she hears her brother, like, poking around the house with a gun, breaking windows and knocking parts of the house off. (laughs) And then he locks her in her room when she tries to go outside. She is not experiencing any of this strangeness. Uh, months later, he, he comes down with a bad fever for a while that might explain everything. He's had some kind of creeping illness. Then he kills his new dog after Pepper disappears, or maybe there never was a Pepper, but he's talking about his old dog, but he never talks about these strange occurrences. I mean, we have no idea, as we said, what happened to her after the story either. She never seems to come out of the house. Maybe she was a ghost the whole time because... What we get from the recluse's report is that he primarily subsists on brandy and cookies, which is like pure 19th century bachelor fuel. <laughs> and then Tonneson, who's the one of the characters in the frame narrative, is convinced all of this is real. Hodgson, the Hodgson who wrote the introduction, is split on whether the recluse broke into some metaphysical plane of reality. I mean, I'm kind of combining Mary's experience with some other bits here of maybe this never happened. But... The real question is, why do you think Hodgson sows this type of doubt in the story? And what do you think Mary's experience is going to lead us to believe as readers? Right. We have so far been dealing with this story as if the metaphysical stuff that is presented here is is some kind of cosmology that Hodgson is presenting to us as readers and, and in response to and dialogue with the time machine. I don't think that's wrong. But there is a lot in here that suggests that the narrator of this story is is insane and none of this actually happened, which maybe kind of undermines the idea that Hudson is advocating for this uh, kind of way to to deal with uh, the new materiality of of uh, or the materiality of the the new physics because I, I have my sense is that, None of this actually happened that uh, I think Pepper probably is real, but you're right to point out that we get no corroboration of that, right? That Mary never actually talks about Pepper and maybe she is listening to her brother talk about this dog that doesn't 
exist anymore that you know maybe used to exist but doesn't anymore uh, and and so there's all of this stuff that 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 Hodgson layers in here to make us wonder about the mental health of the narrator. One of the things we might even ask is, who's in charge here in the house? Who brought who to this isolated place? Right. The way that the narrator presents this is that he got this house at a bargain, and so he moved himself and his sister out there. We learn later that you know the moving required donkeys because this is uh, at some point a generation before the 1870s so it's, you know probably you know the middle or early part of the 19th century and he tells us that this is just where he chose to be in his retirement but what we learn gradually throughout the story is that he is dealing with a profound personal tragedy, which is the the loss of a woman he was in love with. I don't know that they were ever married. I suspect not, though perhaps they were. I also infer, and Brandon, this is a place where I'd, I'd like you to, you know, either take me to task or back me up here. But I have a strong sense that, given the given the way that suicide manifests so strongly at the end of the story, and that the narrator is also thinking about whether or not he's going to be able to join his former lover. I think she killed herself. That's the tragedy that he's been dealing with. So there's a way of reading the story there. She she killed herself. He's dealing with that tragedy and not dealing with it well. And so his sister never marries because she has to take care of him and maybe has been taking care of him for decades and eventually decides that the thing that he needs most is to live in complete isolation from other people except for her. And so she moves them to the middle of nowhere in County Galway, not him. I love that reading. I would argue, though, only that if anybody drove uh, the recluse to the house or got him there, it was the house itself. Um, and, and that's kind of the, I don't know, haunting of Phil House <laughs> reading that I, that I would include in your reading of the story. I'm not willing to say that there's nothing supernatural or odd or strange about the house itself. I mean, it's built on a fairy circle. Um, but uh, I will say that the way that he is talking him to himself about the end at the end of the story about being a, an object of pure corruption, the way that suicide is invoked and um, the way that the sea of evil is in inv- the sea of sleep is an inversion of paradise, a perversion of paradise. Um, and he's become obsessed with joining his lover. Uh, I think it's safe to say that in, if we're reading a, a mundane kind of non-supernatural except for some sort of like weird uh, mischievous fairy magic sense of the story that the narrator also the recluse also kills himself to join his lover and that's why we get this hell imagery uh, and the inversion of the divine comedy at the sea of sleep and I and I think uh, it's a completely fair reading to say that the lover killed herself and that's how he joins her and there's no uh glowing fungus disease it's just corruption of the soul all right well i think uh we've offered a lot of readings a lot of (laughs) modes uh, a lot of ways in to this story Uh, but um let's just talk about it as our own bit of pleasure reading that we did in preparation for this podcast let's give our final evaluations Glenn, what did you think of the overall craft of this story? How did the prose work for you? Did the story cohere? 
Has our discussion given you a deeper appreciation for the story or kind of a, a more awareness of its flaws is the word we've been using or disjointedness in a way that disrupts your appreciation for the story? Well, I really enjoyed this book. I, I had read it before. This was not my first time reading it, though it's my first time reading it in, in two decades or so. And I was really glad to revisit it, uh, having read a lot more weird fiction, uh, being a much more educated person than I was as a teenager when I read this the first time, uh, being able to to grapple with, with you know, grapple is all we did. I'm not sure we answered anything, but, you know, to grapple with, with some of these other things that Hodgson is doing. Because as I said, maybe at the top of this episode, my memory of this book was that it's about swine things assaulting this house and this guy having to defend the house from them. Because when I was much younger, certainly as a, as a teenager, I was not particularly interested in the the cosmological stuff, the metaphysical stuff that's going on here, and and certainly wouldn't have been thinking about uh, about grief, about the profound loss, even though that's clearly at the center of the story, as you know the the uh, epigram at the beginning makes clear to us, right? That's what it's there for. So I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to uh, to read this book again. I, I do think that you're right to be emphasizing the way in which it's disjointed, but. I'm able to to set that aside and 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 uh, but I'm able to set that aside as simply being an artifact of the time. I do think that if Hodgson were around today, he might have written this book a little bit differently. He might have actually separated some of these ideas and written different books about them, but I you know, but none of that takes away from the pleasure that I had reading this book. How about you? Yeah, I tend to agree with your overall evaluation here. Uh for me the disjointedness was a problem. It did get in the way of kind of the pure pleasure of the reading experience for me. But that is given that we've covered so much uh, of Hodgson's other work that what I realize I like about Hodgson is kind of his uh, the, his kind of more aristocratic, chivalric romance adventure stories that have these supernatural elements. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading more of his kind of aspirational works of which this is to kind of put all of him uh, all of his work kind of side by side. What what is he doing with his aspirational works? What is he investigating? What is he doing with his works that he's just making a buck because his uh, gym failed and he couldn't get his beach body program off the ground? Like not, <laughs> not enough people were super into lifting. You know, like this guy fascinates me. I mean, he dropped out of school at 13. This is a very intelligent mind grappling with like up to the minute, cutting edge questions that like informed his childhood, his relationship with his father, um, what's happening in the world that he's interested in, his own like sense of being an adventurer uh, and being into like super strong and like conquering the world or at least confronting the world with strength. I really love William Hope Hodgson. And, and I, I this story gave me a deep, deeper appreciation of him um, as an artist and a writer and I loved so much about this story, um, but there was there were some there were some hurdles, as I think <laughs> anybody who's listened to this podcast uh, will will know that I experienced some hurdles in, in appreciating the text deeply. But I love what he's doing. I love that he's encountering the time machine and thinking about putting a work in conversation with that. I love that he's grappling with metaphysics and the concept of ideal forms, the notion of souls, the materialistic universe. There's a lot to love about this story. I think if I had read it as a teenager, I'd have a very different sense of enjoyment 
than I did reading it this time. But um, overall, I mean, it just makes me more interested in William Hope Hodgson. Uh, and that's kind of what we do this show for. I mean, on some level is to just get to know these writers. Yeah, I agree completely with all of the sentiments you just expressed there. I mean, we've done, I think this is the fourth bit of Hodgson that we've done on Elder Sign. This is, you know, if I were going to rank them, this is not at the top. It's probably not at the the, the bottom either, but it's not at the, the, the top. But I actually think that we say that probably about all of the weird fiction writers before the real age of the novel after World War II, right? That, although I'm sure that there are many H.P. Lovecraft fans who would list At the Mountains of Madness as their favorite Lovecraft story, probably for most people it's not. It's some bit of the short fiction, not At the Mountains of Madness, the novel, or Charles Dexter Ward, his novel, right? And I think this is also true of uh, Robert E. Howard, right? I love the Conan stories, but the, the one Conan novel that Howard wrote is not anywhere near the best Conan story, for example, right? So these writers who were living in a world in which uh, making a living as a fiction writer meant to be selling short stories and novelettes and novellas to magazines, not sitting down and writing a novel that you hope you might be able to sell to a publisher and get paid for a year and a half after you've already done a year's worth of work, right? That's not the writing landscape that any of these guys are working in. And so it's maybe no surprise that, you know, this feels maybe rushed or disjointed or something to us and that we're naturally gravitating back towards uh, Hudson's short fiction. And I will say that this really makes me want to get back to Karnacki, the ghost finder, because I think that is where we are going to get more of Hudson thinking about cosmology, right? When we did the Haunted Jarvie that's that's what he was dealing with. He was thinking about new discoveries in physics, right? He was thinking about electricity as this new idea, this new concept. Uh, so I want to get back to Karnacki. I want to do some more Karnacki stories and see what other th- problems in physics uh, Hodgson is thinking about and how he's thinking about them. And having this novel under our belt, I think, is going to help us do those Karnacki stories and understand them and situate them in the the wider context of what Hodgson is thinking about so I'm super glad we got to do this. Well, I cannot wait to get to more Karnacki stories. I really enjoyed The Haunted RV. But I think that that's going to close this discussion of The House on the Borderland. Uh, once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Check us out on our forum on our website, claytemplemedia.com, as Glenn just said. And also check us out on our subreddit, which is claytemplemedia. And just another huge thanks to the Patreon supporter who commissioned us to do this pair of episodes here on The House in the Borderland. Just so glad that we got to do this. This was a really good time for me. So we will be back in a few days with uh, whatever is next. We don't actually know what that is because time is wibbly wobbly where we are, but you can always find out on the website. So until then, we greet you and say farewell.